0: Welcome to The Oracle, a podcast for wild feminine wisdom channeled from the deep. I'm your host, Miriam Rupshitz, creatrix of Moonbody. I'm a guide for women sharing body-based teachings on the feminine. The Oracle brings you podcasts on womb wisdom, sacred sexuality, embodiment, and the women's mysteries. My prayer is that these conversations with my coven enrich Ignite and inspire your relationship to the sacred feminine for a life of magic, pleasure and power. Hi, this is a special episode of the Oracle Podcast. It's just me, just Miriam, your host. And this is going out on New Year's Eve for all my witches who perhaps like myself partied hard as youngsters (laughs) and now prefer a more sedate and relaxed New Year's Eve celebration. And of course if you're going hard, partying hard tonight, you can always listen another day. I made this episode with My listeners in mind who I know enjoy pottering whilst listening to the Oracle podcast. So this is for you, love. Love, so many of you tell me what you like to do when you listen. You're in the bath, you're making food, you're, you know, you're cleaning. I don't want to just call it cleaning because it's not just cleaning. It's kind of a ritual renewal that goes on. This is how I clean, you know, doing magic. and making everything fresh and nice so that I can feel that kind of, that purity and cleanliness and build off of that. That's what I'm doing when I'm cleaning my house. So in this episode, we're gonna speak about some of my favorite things and some things that are very fitting for this time of year, because contrary to the Gregorian calendar, that tells you that the new year is tomorrow. That doesn't seem like it's really the start of the year now, does it? (laughs) To me, anyway. Uh, It's cold, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. It's dark. It's not a time of rebirth and renewal, really, is it? So I like to wait until spring to have that kind of ritualized sense of a new beginning. I know some women, some people like to celebrate Samhain as Witch's New Year, as the start of a new year. For me, that's like going down into the dark. And I love this time of year. Uh, I've learned to appreciate it with a little bit more wisdom and time under my belt, you know. Um, I always wanted to go away for winter, go away somewhere sunny. And I think there's an interesting correlation between this kind of this idea of the eternal ovulation. Um, For those of you who know about menstrual cycle attunement and know about the alignment between our ovulation and our inner summer, this peak time of our infradian rhythm where our hormones are at their highest and our capacity for these more outward-facing tasks are at their highest because we're full of oestrogen and there's many other kind of hormonal and psychological uh, effects because of this, this peak of oestrogen. And I like to describe our world as hyper-yang. We are many of us and the world itself and the other the men people are often locked into this permanent state of yang where yin, the feminine, the dark, the slow, the moist, gets put on the back burner because burnout is what happens in a hyper yang world when we're always on. It's as if we're asking the moon to always be full, we're asking our ovaries to always be ovulating. Imagine if you ovulated every day of your cycle, you would go bananas. And there's a little bit of this energy around winter. You know, we can't go out naked in the garden. (laughs) Well, we can, but it's cold, you know. You You can't wear your nice summer dress. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to get cozy and you have to prepare. You have to... You know, get food and you have to work with the adverse weather conditions. There's this element of challenge involved. It's not as easy as summer. And I enjoy that challenge and I enjoy facing the dark. And that's going to be one of the key themes that we're going to speak about in this episode. So, love to enjoy it to its fullest. Get comfy, get cozy, unless of course you are pottering around and doing whatever you you know, do whatever you want to do, obviously. I want to start off by reading a little bit of Anana's Descent. This incredible poem. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy. You can get a second-hand copy very easily of Inanna's Descent. I'm using the the Wolkstein-Kramer translation, which is probably the, the most common. Let's start. From the great above, she opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, the goddess opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, Anana opened her ear to the great below my mistress abandoned heaven abandoned earth and descended to the underworld Inanna abandoned heaven abandoned earth and descended to the underworld now i always find that opening very powerful the use of repetition is powerful But so is this idea that this great goddess of heaven and earth left her her place and abandoned heaven and earth and descended to the underworld. Also this idea of opening her ear to the great below. In the Sumerian language that this poem was written in, The word for ear is the same as the word for wisdom. So I always find that an interesting thing to consider as well. This idea of opening our ear to the great below. This, I believe, is what women are doing when we choose to go into the sacred dark. So that could be winter. That could be shadow work. Some element of facing ourselves, some initiatory rite of passage, whether it's accepting the challenge to grow beyond your wildest dreams, to heal things that have been keeping you stuck. Whatever it is, there is this this symbolic darkness that we are facing. So like Inanna, when you choose to do this, you are opening your ear to the great below. So this epic poem, The Descent of Anana, was written on clay tablets in the 3rd millennium BC by Priestess Enheduanna. And it is the world's oldest written poem. One of the things that I take away from this poem, and it is the the first gate of dark feminine medicine, which is one of my favourite Offerings that is currently going on now for its fourth year. We work with Anana as our first goddess, and we work with her poem. And this is because we are learning what it means to see in the dark after having our night vision dimmed by the excessive solar consciousness, the hyper yang I was talking about of modern culture. And You know, there's a very literal expression of this. We have too much artificial blue light from our screens. We have too much doing, pushing, moving. That's all yang behavior. We have, you know, these spiritual traditions that prize light and the transcendent over the dark and the imminent. So the masculine over the feminine particularly in New Age spirituality, which says love and light is the way forwards. So what we're doing in winter is we're moving from yang in to yin. This is a time of year to, if you are able to, to move slow and to sip the sacred dark like a potion, to sleep, rest, And let yourself be moved by the sacred dark. We live in a culture afraid of the dark. Death-phobic, change-averse and shadow-avoidant. And what is so interesting about this, and this is something that really is one of the key themes that my work explores and has been exploring for the last decade, is... That the feminine, and by that I mean the primordial energy, as well as women, has a special relationship with darkness. And, and I love a conspiracy theory, I'm sure some of you do too, I also pride myself on being quite good at knowing what is, knowing what is uh, You know, a legitimate conspiracy theory that is actually true. And what is bananas? The feminine has a special relationship with darkness and that relationship has been inverted and destroyed. Why? We need to drink the nectar of the sacred dark in order to be well and whole It is interwoven with our sacred rites of passage as women. There is a thread that connects the dark womb of the cosmos with our own individual womb, a portal of infinite potentiality and creative possibility. Each monthly cycle is a death portal. We are supposed to surrender into it and then be reborn through it. Each orgasm can be a petit mort, a little death in which we are made anew. Dark like the moon, dark like the womb. There was a moment in time when the dark goddess was buried and with her, we pushed our understanding of the magical, mysterious healing powers of the dark feminine into the shadow. So there are several theories about why this happened. And several incredible suggestions that I've read uh, put it down to a specific period in our history, around 4000 BCE and 2500 So this is when the Neolithic period was ending and the Bronze and Iron Ages were beginning. And at this time, there were Proto-Indo-European tribes coming from Central Asia and Northern Europe, coming into Western Europe. And these tribes were warring people on horseback with weapons. They didn't worship the goddess they worshiped daddy God in the sky who I've never been a big fan of this conception of God because I was brought up reading a lot of Old Testament and a lot of a lot of these stories which are really rich beautiful stories many of them but they also have this like this thread of this God is cruel he 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 does a lot of mind games with people you know um and i don't think this god of retribution and punishment is i don't think that that is the reality of whatever this energy is that is life i think behind it is the purest matrix of love we could ever understand and I know matrix is a word that <laughs> can put people on edge. Matrix, matrix. It's a web. It's the mother web. This root word ma material matter mother. Matrix is a good word. I think we need to bring back bring back the matrix. Um, for me it is this there's a web that is like the fascia supports the muscles and the bones of the body. This web, this matrix of life is the uh, the formlessness that underpins everything and stitches it all together, that animates everything. For me, that is goddess, God, source, universe. So I've never been into Sky Daddy. He sounds like a dick. These dudes on their horses with their weapons... Um, who worshiped this solar god in the sky who used to, if you've ever seen Fantasia, um, a children's Disney film, Sky Daddy there, he throws lightning bolts down. You know, a god of fire, a god of air. And the earth goddess worshipping people of the neolithic times and we know that they were very much about mama goddess from all the beautiful things they left behind to tell us all the statuettes sometimes called venus figures but it's not an ideal phrase because venus is the romanized objectified version of aphrodite so you know i just call them neolithic and paleolithic statuettes and this art, these art pieces, these um, these ochre-stained bones and shells, and you know, blood and cowrie shells that look like vulvas—they were left behind by our Paleolithic and Neolithic ancestors. So, so much about. These indigenous cultures were obviously worshipping the goddess, worshipping the full-bellied, full-thighed, full-bottomed and breasted feminine as the giver, as the creatress, as the nourisher of all. And they were wiped out. They were conquered by the god tribes. And this is often cited as the beginning of patriarchy, a time where all that feminine consciousness that had been brewing and building on the earth for millennia was destroyed and buried. And yeah, here we are today. So Inanna and her descent are symbols of dark feminine reclamation, scattered like breadcrumbs along a path winding through the deep, dark woods of the unconscious realm. Inanna, herself a contradiction and an invitation back to wholeness, shows us how our potential to become whole lies in our ability to rediscover the medicine hidden in all the places the overculture told us not to look. We find it in sexuality, in the earth, in our bodies, in our wild beating hearts and our emotional storms. I have a lovely quote here that I want to read. It's uh, from Sylvia Brinton-Pereira's book, Descent to the Goddess. The return to the goddess for renewal in a feminine source, ground and spirit is a vitally important aspect of modern woman's quest for wholeness. We women who have succeeded in the world are usually daughters of the father, that is, well adapted to a masculine-oriented society and have repudiated our own full feminine instincts and energy patterns, just as culture has maimed or derogated most of them. So, I think, what is being described here by Sylvia Brinton-Pereira is perhaps a more Jungian view of what happened when the goddess was buried. So in the time that I have decided to sit down and record this, a storm has erupted. And now it's dark and rainy and the trees are banging against the windows. Perfect for me cosily ensconced in my house, or is it ensconced? One of those, ensconced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I want to read a little bit more of Descent of Banana*. She gathered together the seven may. She took them into her hands. With the may in her possession, she prepared herself. She placed the sugarer, the crown of the step, on her head. She arranged the dark locks of hair across her forehead. She tied the small lapis beads around her neck, let the double strand of beads fall to her breast and wrapped the royal robe around her body. She daubed her eyes with ointment called, let him come, let him come. Bound the breastplate called, come man, come, around her chest she slipped the gold ring over her wrist and took the lapis measuring rod and line in her hand enana set out for the underworld so the seven may are these artifacts of enana's priestesshood of her power as a ruler as a deity they are cultural artifacts of Sumer of the culture in which she comes from, this, that this poem was written in. And they denote her power. They are like armor. Well, some of them are armor, the breastplate, for example, in that they elevate her and When I read this passage, I always think of the way that we as women will put on our seven me, whatever they are. Maybe not a crown, probably not the lapis measuring rod, but maybe our favourite dress or our favourite lipstick, or for me, it's my favourite thick, chunky gold hoops and how we wear our armour out into the world. In the next part of the poem, Anana is traveling to the underworld gate where she's met by her sister, Ereshkigal's gatekeeper, Neti. So Ereshkigal is the queen of the underworld and Anana, her sister, is the queen of heaven and earth. So there's already this kind of, this pitting of heaven and earth in contrast to the underworld. So Neti, the gatekeeper, informs Ereshkigal of Anana's arrival. When Ereshkigal heard this, she slapped her thigh and bit her lip. She took the matter into her heart and dwelt on it. Then she spoke, come Neti, my chief gatekeeper of the Kur, heed my words. Bolt the seven gates of the underworld. Then, one by one, open each gate a crack. Let Inanna enter. As she enters, remove her royal garments. Let the holy priestess of heaven enter bowed low. Neti heeded the words of his queen. He bolted the seven gates of the underworld. Then he opened the outer gate. He said to the maid, Come, Anana, enter. When she entered the first gate from her head, the shugura, the crown of the step, was removed. Anana asked, what is this? She was told, quiet, Anana. The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the second gate from her neck, the small lapis beads were removed. Anana asked, What is this? She was told, Quiet, Anana, the ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the third gate, from her breast, the double strand of beads was removed. Anana asked, What is this? She was told, Quiet, Anana, the ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the fourth gate, from her chest, the breastplate called, come man, come, was removed. Inanna asked, what is this? She was told, quiet Inanna, the ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the fifth gate, from her wrist, the gold ring was removed. Inanna asked, what is this? She was told, quiet Anana. the ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the sixth gate, from her hand the lapis measuring rod and line was removed. Anana asked, what is this? She was told, quiet Anana. the ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. When she entered the seventh gate, From her body, the royal robe was removed. Inanna asked, what is this? She was told, be quiet. The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. Naked and bowed low, Inanna entered the throne room. So as we mentioned, these me, it's spelled me, are divine decrees or gifts of civilization and they encompass various aspects of Sumerian culture. Each of the May represents a specific aspect of Anana's divine authority and the functions associated with her role as a goddess. By surrendering the May on her descent, Anana is symbolically divesting herself of her power. This act is often interpreted as a voluntary sacrifice or a symbolic gesture of humility and vulnerability before entering the realm of the underworld. The seven may that Anana removes at each gate are typically associated with different aspects of Sumerian life and culture and civilization, including the art of lovemaking in terms of her, um, the ointment called uh, let him come, let him come, the craft of music and the scribe, the power of the shepherd, the authority of the throne in terms of the crown and the lapis rod. The removal of these symbols is underscoring the transformative nature of Anana's journey and her willingness to undergo a symbolic death and rebirth Something that is always really... I'm really touched by this poem. I find it very touching to think, you know, three millennia ago, for this to be such a central part of the culture of the time, this poem that has survived um, and is still read today, you know, by thousands of people. What touches me is that we've all been through this journey of descent. And I do believe, I mean... I believe that women have a more essential relationship to death and rebirth as part of the biological spiritual reality of our existence, i.e. that we have wounds, and we bleed, and we birth, whether humans or creations. And so when I think about how Anana has to strip off her seven me, it asks me, how many times have I been stripped and bowed low by life? How many times have I had to take off my armor and my expensive earrings and my nice things? and come back to this place of nakedness because that's how I came in and that is how I will leave. And if I ever get too weighted down by my artifacts and my artifice, I'm gonna get lost, I'm gonna get stuck and I won't be able to go on these necessary journeys because my sense of self will have become rigid, Life is a series of initiatory gates. As women, we experience many of these initiations at the level of the body. Death, heartbreak, betrayal, illness, madness, exile. All of these are initiations. And birth, love, union, well-being, sanity, community, these are the rewards for passing through them. How many times have you asked, like a nana, what is this, in the midst of chaos and heard the universe remind you the ways of the underworld are perfect and may not be questioned. There is a divine poetry to the symbols and secrets of the sacred dark. And as we develop our night vision, we learn to see them more clearly. To choose descent is a sacrifice. It is an act of receptivity. It is an initiation. Initiations live outside of the kind of analytical left-brain thinking we are taught is the only way to be somebody of worth in our culture. Or this may have changed quite a lot in the last few years. To be initiated is to let the mystery have its way with you. There is risk involved and There is always a death of sorts. So there are several ways in which the myth of Inanna's descent is interpreted. One of the most common ones is as an allegory for the changing seasons and the cyclical rhythm of the living world. Inanna's descent into the underworld and her subsequent return are likened to the cycle of vegetation her death symbolizing the withering of plants in winter and her rebirth representing the regeneration of life in spring. The planet Venus was worshipped in ancient Mesopotamia as Inanna. It stays in the sky for 250 and then 236 days. It descends and it disappears before rising again. Here we see the early roots of the Persephone myth, which would play a key role in the Eleusinian mysteries hundreds of years in the future, something that we will speak about later in this episode. The second interpretation is that the descent tells a story of initiation into the mysteries, and the way that this is often accompanied by the sacrificing of upper world life, for the treasures of underworld life. In order to plumb the depths, we cannot remain unchanged and comfortable. A third common interpretation is that the poem represents the merging of the conscious with the unconscious mind. Many humans, we live cut off from the parts of ourselves and the parts of life which feel like they are somehow too much, unwanted or ugly. And this creates a psychic split with shadow material that is kept just out of reach of our consciousness. And without the ability to know our shadow, we repeat patterns that limit our growth and keep us stuck and stagnant. Enana's myth is in some ways a reminder to make the unconscious conscious, as Jung might say and a fourth common interpretation is that Anana's descent represents the reclamation of feminine power. Anana, queen of heaven and earth, chooses to descend to the underworld. She goes by choice. Despite being stripped of her sacred items and murdered eventually, which spoiler alert, <laughs> unfortunately she is killed and hung on a hook, and eventually she's reborn. It is in descending that she meets the full potential of her power. So it it is in losing all of her 7 may, and losing her life that she actually comes back and becomes herself. And there is another interpretation that I have Of the myth that I haven't read anywhere else, but this is the way that I interpret it in dark feminine medicine with the women who work with me through this seven week journey. And that is that I interpret it as a reorientation for women away from their mind, representing the upper world and down into the primal center of the lower body, so the underworld of the body. The underworld of our body because this is where the mystery takes place. You know, we have the womb, we have the mysteries, the blood mysteries, and the mysteries of creation, of pregnancy, and of birth, which in itself is this apparently highly... Trippy experience giving birth, which may be because of DMT, interestingly enough. We also have our anus. Poor old anus gets a hard rap for many of us, just gets completely ignored or just kind of treated with like disdain and rejection. When this is a powerful place to receive pleasure in our bodies, whatever body you are in the anus is a beautiful place of pleasure and you know digestion is one of the most essential things we need to do as humans and having a healthy digestion and a healthy relationship to this part of our body is going to just make our general well-being our general life more comfortable and healthy in every single way and yet there is this kind of strange pretense that none of us and of course sex pleasure the mysteries of union um the incredible pleasure available to us in our bodies the mother goddess was our ancient ancestors primary deity and then she was buried deep down in the human psyche she rested for centuries hidden in plain sight Now she is being remembered and is calling us back to her. She's a field of love, chthonic, often chaotic, but wild, raw and pure. She's a welcome antidote to the distortions of new age spirituality and a fierce ally for women reclaiming themselves, their womb and their body. One of the dark goddess's key transmissions is the memory of the human root as integral to wholeness and embodiment. When the dark goddess was exiled, darkness was distorted as something evil and sinful. But for women to know their power, they have to fall in love with the darkness. Our bleeding times, our body's inherent dwelling in the liminal, our embodied rites of passage, all are deeply connected to the sacred dark. So it is for us to remember the dark goddess as an ally and teacher and to drink her medicine and remember the treasures of our root, sex, blood, magic, wild embodiment, shameless pleasure and sacred intuition. Descent is an archetypal feminine initiation. One of the reasons that new age spirituality fails women is that it teaches ascendance, neglecting the downward pull into the realms of magic and mystery to which the feminine ear is attuned and the body is lulled. So when we bleed, There is this almost magnetic pulling of our bodies to the earth. Our blood wants to return. Our blood wants to go back into the earth. Our blood wants to become the food that feeds humans and makes the new blood. In yoga, we call it the apana vayu, the downward flow and the ancient yogis they had more of a knowledge of the ways that energies and energetic forces exert themselves onto the human body and so recognizing the vayu, the downward flow is something that modern people like us could really benefit from i spoke earlier of the myth of persephone how Anana's descent is the precursor to the myth of Persephone. The story goes that Persephone, the daughter of Demeter, who was the goddess of agriculture and fertility, was a beautiful and innocent young maiden. And she attracted the attention of Hades, the god of the underworld. Whilst Persephone was picking flowers in a meadow one day, Hades emerged from the underworld in a chariot and seized Persephone, taking her to the underworld against her will. Upon realising her daughter was missing, Demeter was overcome with grief and she wandered the earth in despair, neglecting her duties as the goddess of agriculture. And as a result, the land became barren. In her search for Persephone, Demeter came to Eleusis where she assumed the form of an old woman named Doso. She became a nursemaid for a mortal child called Demophon. And while in Eleusis, Demeter revealed her divine identity to the queen and agreed that she would teach Demophon the secrets of immortality, but eventually was thwarted when his mother, the queen, interrupted the process. The gods, concerned about the suffering of both the Earth and the mortals, intervened. And Zeus commanded Hades to release Persephone. However, during her stay in the underworld, Hades had tricked Persephone into eating a few pomegranate seeds. Unbeknownst to Persephone, consuming food in the underworld binds the person there. Demeter was overjoyed when Persephone was allowed to return to the upper world. However, because she ate a few of the pomegranate seeds, she would have to spend part of the year in the underworld. This myth explains the cycle of the seasons. When Persephone is with her mother, the earth flourishes. This is spring and summer. When she descends to the underworld, Demeter is in mourning. And so the earth becomes barren, autumn and winter. This myth of Persephone and Demeter is what the sacred rites of the Eleusinian mysteries were based on. The Eleusinian mysteries were secret, sacred rites observed in the Temple of Eleusis, a town 14 miles northwest of Athens. And it's estimated that the mysteries took place from 1600 BC to 392 CE. So, a long time, more than a thousand years. Like the myth of Persephone, the rites focused on the themes of death, rebirth, and the promise of an afterlife. Despite them being secret upon pain of death, We know a few things about the Eleusinian mysteries. It was believed that initiates gained insight into the mysteries of life and death through participation in rituals fueled with a spiked beer named Kekion. Exactly what the drink was spiked with has been the subject of much debate. Archaeochemists have deduced that it was a barley-based drink likely including barley that had been infected by the ergot fungus. Ergot in the right dosage is psychoactive and can induce a powerful trance-like trip. And in the wrong doses, it can be fatal. In the mysteries of Eleusis, initiates drank the medicine, met the dark goddess in the underworld and were transformed. At this time of year, there's another mythical psychoactive fungus on my mind, Amanita muscaria, also known as fly agaric. And this little red, well, it's not always little, it can be quite big, reddy orange mushroom with white spots is often the first thing that comes to people's minds when they think about magic mushrooms. For me, it's not because I was born in Somerset and for me, magic mushrooms will always be liberty caps, which grow in abundance here in the green fields and are little brown uh, pointy tipped mushrooms that look a little bit like a parasol, not a parasol mushroom, an actual parasol. Amanita muscaria is a powerful mushroom and has recently been the subject of a renewed interest over the last five or so years among entheogen enthusiasts like myself. I've been working with Amanita for some time in the form of microdosing a tincture and find it to be a powerful, loving and subtle medicine which works on repairing our fractures at the roots. Working with Amanita feels like having a loving guide in the background of my life, reminding me to attend to the simple, mundane and often overlooked parts of my life. I felt a push towards cultivating more humility, peace and simplicity since working with the mushroom, as well as a desire to heal the most fundamental wound most human beings suffer from, the illusion of separation the idea that we are lonely little human islands, rather than the truth, which is that we are all of us knitted into the web of life. Some believe Amanita Muscaria may have been involved in the rites of Eleusis, though I and many others who are far more knowledgeable than me on the subject think differently. Having ingested Amanita both as a micro and a macro dose, I don't think it's likely that it could have been the psychoactive ingredient used in Kikian. Unlike psilocybin, Amanita's main psychoactive ingredients are ibotenic acid and muscimol, and they do not induce the same kind of trip that's found with psilocybin. The reports from the Eleusinian initiates are that they had an experience that was so profound that they were permanently transformed and became convinced of their immortality. Personally, I can't see how Amanita could bestow this kind of peak experience. And usually Amanita requires some sort of preparation in order for it to work. This is why we hear stories of Siberian shamans drinking the urine of reindeer who had eaten the Amanita, synthesizing the mushrooms' psychoactive compounds. In the Earth module of my facilitator training, the Cosmic Feminine, we study mushrooms. We look at their potential for healing and spiritual activation, as well as the history of female psychedelic shamans. The second cohort of the cosmic feminine begins in late march and i'm currently accepting applications so the rig veda part of hinduism's oldest sacred texts the vedas contains references to soma soma was a drink of immortality consumed in a ritual setting and was believed to offer the immortality to the one who drank it. Here's a reference to Soma in one of the Rig Veda's Sanskrit hymns. We have drunk Soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the gods discovered. Now, what harm may foeman's malice do to us? What, O oh, immortal? mortal man's deception. The active ingredient in Soma, according to many experts, was Amanita Mascaria. This sounds a little bit more legit than Amanita being the psychoactive ingredient in Kikion. I'm a big fan of earth-based medicines and I've been lucky enough to work extensively with psilocybin, with mushrooms, with amanita, and with ayahuasca. I've been working with certain earth medicines for over 20 years. Um, As I mentioned, growing up in Somerset, having uh, going out to the fields and picking um, liberty caps and eating them, that was my my teenage years. And as I got a little bit older, I started to enter into those experiences with a bit more reverence and was very lucky, have been very lucky to work extensively with ayahuasca as well. And inevitably at some point, we are gonna be shown our shadow. and Jung coined this term shadow to refer to the unconscious and repressed aspects of our personality, of our psyche, including things, desires, instincts that are not socially accepted or acknowledged. So looking at our shadow can be, yeah, it can be a very confronting thing to do. And yet it is inevitable as daughters of the patriarchy we have been warned not to venture into the deep dark woods because we'd be eaten by a big bad wolf only to discover that the type of conscious venturing into the darkness that we are doing with shadow work is an essential kind of spiritual hygiene and we need to do it in order to form a healthy sense of self to have healthy relationships, to be well as a human being. This adventure into the dark woods or descent to the goddess or heroine's journey is the natural unfolding of a woman who has begun the process of maturation, healing and embodiment. Shadow work is a tool of the wise woman Many of us feel shadow work to be edgy and might even have your pulse racing just to consider doing it. My approach is to hold shadow work lightly and one of the aspects of this lighter approach comes from the simple truth that you are not bad or wrong or unworthy. You are simply human. And for those of us who've been indoctrinated into black and white thinking through religion or culture, this truth is particularly important because many religions have deemed normal human behaviors are sinful. And these ideas can stick with us. If we start looking at our shadow through the lens of shadows as sins, we end up shaming ourselves, creating further distortions and splitting off from our shadow. An example of this could be illustrated with one of the feminine's common shadows, I am too much. When we unpack this particular belief of being too much, we may find on one side there is an invitation to take up space, to feel our feelings, our desires, our longings for more, our ability for expression, bigness, and healthy ego. Many of us will benefit from exploring this side. Are you a woman who has been taught to avoid persecution by hiding? Then your work is to feel safe as you take up space in the world and express yourself truthfully. Were you a woman who was taught that if you are too beautiful or too sensual or too sparkling, then other women will hate you? then your work is to lean into your brilliance and to shine without apology. Speaking of shadow work, and being around the deep winter time, I recently started to think about the story of the Snow Queen. Have you heard it? I used to read it as a little girl. The Snow Queen is a fairy tale written by Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. It was first published in 1844. It begins with the story of a mischievous troll who creates a mirror that distorts the beauty and goodness in everything it reflects. The mirror shatters into countless pieces and tiny shards find their way into people's hearts, turning them cold and selfish. One particularly unfortunate incident occurs when a shard enters the eye and heart of a young boy. And this causes him to become cruel and indifferent. And I was thinking about this in relation to Witiko. And I believe that what is described in the Snow Queen story has a very interesting parallel with Witiko. This term is used in indigenous cultures, particularly among the Cree and Salish peoples, to describe a spiritual and psychological affliction. It often refers to a type of cannibalistic spirit that possesses individual consciousness and communities as well, and leads to destructive, selfish behaviors. If you've ever known an abusive person, maybe a narcissist or a psychopath, you may have experienced the feeling of them becoming possessed. Their face changes, their eyes alter, as if something has temporarily taken over their consciousness. This would be an illustration of Wittiko. And it's my belief that all of us are in some way touched by the Snow Queen's splintered mirror or the mind virus of Witiko. Now, most of us listening to this are not people who are out in the world actively causing harm, are not people of hatred and violence. And yet, it is a fact of human existence that all of us have some of this poison within us. It's my belief that our work as explorers of feminine consciousness is to be continuously attending to this poison, this unconsciousness, through shadow work, through practice, through ritual. Those of us who've sat with plant teachers like Ayahuasca will likely have experienced purging as a form of somatic shadow work. In ayahuasca ceremony, as we come into contact with our own darkness through visions and memories arising in the experience, we are guided by the spirit of the plant to sift through inner, internal, psychic debris and eliminate what is not truly aligned through deep retching and purging. And these guttural purges often feel as though we are vomiting something from within our very soul, something that was not meant to be there, a form of psychic poison or glass splinter. After the experience, we emerge lighter, reborn. And if we're able to integrate what happened to us, we may be forever changed by it. This time of deep winter is an opportunity for this kind of inner work and purging. We don't necessarily need to have imbibed some kind of psychoactive substance to facilitate this. Like Goddess Anana, we can choose as sovereign women walking the path of the mature feminine, to descend, to marinate in sacred darkness and pan for gold in the shadows. And when we we're in these times on Earth, and we're in one of these times now, and we've been in and out of these times very acutely for the last three years, where something traumatic is playing out on the global stage and it creates polarization and the air becomes thick with a certain kind of energy these are exactly the times where we can go into the sacred dark and purge what is not ours so when so many people in the world are going to be partying tonight on new year's eve This could be time for you to sit and reflect, for you to weave your prayers into the air and let them be carried off far and wide. This could be a time to sit and look in the mirror of the self and to find the places within that are not really you, and to lovingly and lightly let them leave. This to me is shadow work. It doesn't always have to be this difficult or arduous process. Sometimes maybe, but sometimes it can be calm and grounded and it can be done with a cup of tea. There are a few things going on in moon body world right now that you may like to join in on. If you're interested in learning more about some of the themes I've been speaking about in this episode, for example, about the Eleusinian mysteries, then you might like to join my upcoming workshop on wise women, a hidden history. I remember being a kid in the 90s in England, and it being in the news that women had only just been allowed to be ordained as priests. And now knowing what I know about the history of women as the first shamans, as leaders, as spiritual leaders, as wise women, as witches, the idea that in the 90s is when women have only just started to be taken seriously as spiritual leaders, again, says so much about where feminine consciousness has been. So coming up in January, I have a beautiful, very detailed workshop about this, and it's going to be ideal for those of you who are interested in what I've been speaking about, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, in the old stories of descent and stories of the goddess. I'll tell you more about that in January, which is tomorrow. For now, I just want to thank you for listening and for being part of my community this year. This year I've worked with more women than ever. We've done beautiful things. There's been two retreats in Italy. There's been the first training many one-to-one mentees, the mother mind, so many beautiful things have happened in 2023 and I'm very grateful for all of the women I get to connect with through this space. So thank you for listening, have a beautiful New Year's Eve or whenever you are listening to this but particularly to my witches on New Year's Eve. Enjoy, and I wish you a happy, healthy, magical 2024.